title of the message is For Our Example. Last week we finished chapter 9. And in so doing, if you remember, we talked extensively about Paul's metaphor of running a race. More specifically, running the race in such a way so as to get the prize, right? The prize being eternal heavenly dwelling, or as Paul calls it, an imperishable crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25. One of the things that we did not go over last week was Paul's mentioning of how important it is for us to, and I'm quoting, exercise self-control and to discipline our bodies. Um, more specifically, Paul says, make them our slaves. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Paul said, I box in such a way so as to not beat the air, right? You remember that? In other words, you've got to aim at something if you're going to box or when you box. Um, you got to hit something. And you also have to keep your eye on the prize, whatever that, be, that may be, and keep moving in that direction. I feel like Kamala Harris. Kamala, Kamala, yeah. It's the vice president's last name, Harris, right? Yeah, okay. I shouldn't say that, forgive me. I just had, a, as I was fumbling, I had a flashback of her fumbling on the news. And okay, Anyway. Uh, we have to deny ourselves. We have to deny our flesh, the world, and the devil. Okay? That's what we're denying. Flesh, the world, and the devil. Right after Paul says this, we move into chapter 10. Okay? And keeping in mind yet again that there were no chapter verses, chapters or verses, I should say, chapter and verse breaks in the original manuscripts. And as such, it's important that we understand that this is Paul's continual fluid thought as we move from 9 to 10. Why is that important? For our purposes here this morning, it is so because we need to see the context of the subject matter and we need to see that which Paul says as examples to us. And we're only going to be able to see that if we erase those verses and chapter heading, or chapter numbers in our minds, okay? More specifically, in the very beginning of chapter 10, if you look in your Bible, Paul chooses the subject of Israel, okay? Now, why in the world would... Paul go from talking about running a race one minute and then talking about Israel the next minute. Well, the heading at the top of chapter 10 in my, my trusty New American Standard Bible gives us the answer to that question. The heading is avoid Israel's mistakes. Avoid Israel's mistakes. Israel was running a race just like we are, but they didn't do so good. They kind of threw the whole discipline and self-control thing out the window. 
So Paul is going to use their mistakes to teach us what not to do. Okay. Now, please follow along with me in your Bible as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try, try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The first word in verse 1 of chapter 10 is the word for. For I don't want you to be unaware, Paul says. The word indicates that continuation of thought that I was talking about a moment ago. Paul doesn't say, I don't want you to be unaware. He says, for I don't want you to be unaware. He was just talking about running the race a moment ago, and now he is connecting that same subject of persevering in the race with this next thought about Israel by using that one little three-letter word for. He's saying, look, if you want to run the race in a self-controlled, effective way so as to not be disqualified from reaching the prize, then don't follow Israel's example, but instead learn from Israel's example, for I don't want you to be unaware, Paul says. Paul actually mentions this in two out of six verses, verse six and verse 11, to be exact. Verse six, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. And verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what's the first lesson that we learn from Israel in this context? Did they finish the race? 
No, they didn't. In fact, that generation of Israelites never made it to the promised land. And if we run our race the way they run or they ran theirs, we won't make it to the promised land either. We will instead be disqualified just like they were, having not persevered to the end. In fact, only two men were allowed to go into the promised land from that generation. And after that, uh, 40 years in the wilderness, and they were who? Joshua and Caleb, right? Most of you know that. They were the only men that wanted to enter the land when the others chickened out and neglected to believe in what the Lord had promised them. Those who disobeyed the Lord and did not follow his will were disqualified from the race and from getting the prize. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay. John MacArthur, I'm going to quote here about these verses, says this. The warning is clear for Israel. They misused and abused their freedom and their blessings. In self-centeredness and self-will, they tried to live on the edge of their liberty. And they fell into temptation and then into sin. Overconfidence was their undoing, end quote. Are any of you here this morning or any listening to this sermon by way of the internet, are any of you flirting on the edge of your liberty? As MacArthur puts it, we need to ask ourselves that question today. And we need to ask ourselves that question often. Do you say to yourself, just this once more, the Lord will forgive me. And then that sinful act soon becomes more and more frequent. And as such, God becomes more and more distant. And before long, your heart becomes hardened as you become increasingly desensitized to your sin. And you become indifferent to the Holy Spirit's absence of conviction in your life, that's how it goes. That's how it goes every time. And if that's you, now is the time to repent. Repent while the Holy Spirit is still within your reach. Because if you continue on in willful sins, there will come a day and a time when the Holy Spirit completely removes himself from your midst, you will go, as the Bible says, the way of Cain, and sin will be crouching at your door, desiring you, okay? But, unlike Cain, you can master your sin in Christ. You can master your sin in Christ for you, or I'm sorry, for he has provided a way of escape for you. 
I'd also like to read a commentary paragraph regarding our text, the second one, from a Baptist pastor who is new to me. I want to ask Doug and Laura, have you guys ever heard of Dr. Rod Mattoon? Okay, yeah, Laura has. Um, although I have yet to thoroughly check into him, I really like what he wrote about this text. He says, quote, Paul was reminding all of us with the lessons of the past that doubt, disbelief, and disobedience can lead to disqualification in serving Christ. Opportunities for reaping God's blessings can be lost when we are fretful and faithless. Don't forget, he says, Paul's admonition and warning. Then he quotes 1 Corinthians 9.27, which I'll read very quickly. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself, Paul says, will not be disqualified. I think that's very well said, Dr. Mattoon says. Now, one more, okay? Commentary paragraph I'm going to read. You might be thinking, uh, why are you reading three commentaries, Mike? That's unlike you. And you're correct. I normally don't do that. However, given the gravity of the subject matter, eternal security, and perseverance in the race, it's important to me, for you, to know that I'm barking up the right tree with my two cents worth regarding our text. There's no better way for me to validate what I'm saying than to display the works and opinions of trusted men who are much, much smarter than me. So, consequently and therefore, too, I bid you, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, who is the third commentator, theologian that I'm going to quote. I like what he has to say best, and naturally it's probably the shortest. Um, Schreiner says, because of its defection, Israel did not enter the land of promise. So the Corinthians are admonished in order that they will receive the eschatological, that's end times award, on the day of judgment. The section ends, he says, with a word of comfort. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 10, 13. See it there in your Bible. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is, in com is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So Schreiner quotes that verse in our text and then says that Paul is, quote, reminding believers that God will faithfully keep from apostasy those who belong to him. The experiences of Israel in the wilderness are correlated with those of believers in Jesus Christ, and the sins of Israel are set forth to admonish believers not to follow the same pattern. Paul explains this aim in verse 11, he says. The experiences of Israel in the wilderness had a typological role 
anticipating and pointing forward to the church of Jesus Christ, for the end times have now dawned with its coming, end quote. So Israel was a type of example that parallels the Corinthians, but more importantly, parallels everything that we go, go through pertaining to this subject, how we act, how we come out the other end, how we run the race and get to the prize. So Jesus, he comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 12, 28, and Jesus dies and is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. The church age begins. That's what we call it, the church age. And we see this when Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 in Acts 2.17, the birth of the church. So from then until now is my point. We've been and still are in the last days, and we will continue as such until Christ returns. I'd like us to concentrate for just a minute on something that Schreiner said. He said, God was reminding believers that God will faithfully keep from apostasy those who belong to him. And remember, he quoted 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in our text. God will provide a way out. I want you to see the balance here for us as the church. Now, please follow me on this, okay? Remember, MacArthur talked about Israel living on the edge of their liberty and as a result, falling into temptation and sin. But then Schreiner said, the experiences of Israel in the wilderness had a typological role anticipating the pointing forward to the church of Jesus Christ for the end times have now dawned with Christ's coming, Schreiner said. Please take note of the balance between Schreiner and MacArthur. For example, MacArthur is correct when he says that Israel misused and abused their freedom and their blessings, right? And Schreiner basically says the same thing. But Schreiner adds verse 13 of our text, 1 Corinthians 10, to show us that we are not the Israel of old. We, as the church, are the new Israel in Christ. That should give you chills. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. He will keep you from committing apostasy and walking away from the faith. He will keep you from being disqualified. He will keep you from missing the prize. So what's my point? It's the same as MacArthur's and Shriners that we can have the utmost confidence and assurance in our God to deliver us 
even from habitual sins, if we don't walk away from him. I have another passage of scripture for you, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9. Here Peter is talking about God rescuing Lot from unprincipled men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Unprincipled is an understatement. And Peter says, in, beginning in verse 7 of 2 Peter 2, and if he, that's God, recused righteous Lot, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, meaning Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So you see, Lot remained righteous in a completely godless environment. Many of you could maybe relate to this who are, who are in the working world what it's like to work for a company where all the employees around you, surrounding you, whether it be the coffee pot, the water cooler, in the airplane, in the hotel room, wherever, they're all pagans and you're the only Christian. Not fun. I've been there. It's like, a, it's like being in a dry, hot desert. You're just starving for another Christian to have fellowship with in this company where you spend the majority of your time and there's nobody there, okay? So that's Lot. He's in Sodom and Gomorrah with all these putzes and he maintains his righteousness and God rescues Lot. And so God knows how to rescue you from temptation. But we have to understand that we have a part in this too. What does Paul say in the very next verse of our text, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10? Therefore, my beloved, he's talking to Christians, flee from idolatry. That's our responsibility. Remember verse 7? Paul says, do not be idolaters like some of the Israelites were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul is telling the Corinthians that because they loved their idols too, okay, they did, although theirs wasn't a golden calf like Israel's, their idols were a little bit more sophisticated, you know, Aphrodite, Athena, Apollo. They're the Greek biggies, man. Like the Israelites, the Corinthians, and the Corinthians, we have our own idols. And 
Paul is using these examples to instruct us to also flee our idols. What are your idols, Christian? When I bring up things like this, I try to look at the wall because I don't want people thinking I'm talking about them if I make eye contact. I'm not, okay? That, you should also know, I pray before I write stuff like this in my sermon. I not only pray, but I also ask the opinion and get the prayers of the wisest woman that I know, my wife. And so these examples are a result of not last night's pizza, but what I feel the Lord has laid on my heart for this sermon. So if any of these hit home with you uh, this morning, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, so what are your idols, Christian? Maybe one of your idols, I, I see a lot of this today, uh, vanity. I see uh, a lot of this in American Christianity, especially uh, how we dress, what we buy. And I'll go off on this soapbox for a minute. What really bothers me in this regard is when I see a minister who has a big following or, or who is getting a big following and everybody that follows him starts to dress like him or grow a beard like his beard or, you know, mimic his mannerisms. And I mean, I could give examples, but I shouldn't. So I'm just saying, um, that's not good. You shouldn't be following the pastor to that extent, okay? You should be following Christ. Yeah, I can understand people, pastors having fanboys and girls, but yeah, not good. Anyway, vanity. Do you fuss for hours over what you're gonna wear, how much time you spend fixing your hair like me? Are you happy with the car you drive or do you always have your covetous eye on the one that you can't quite afford, but you want so badly to be seen in. Maybe it's the status thing. Um, so many of us spend money on things we don't even need to impress people that don't even care. Maybe um, you idolize busyness. I know a lot of pastors that idolize busyness. Not business, busyness. Do you continually fuss about making yourself busy that you not only don't make time for your loved ones, but you don't make any time for the Lord either? Or perhaps you don't like to slow down because you subconsciously don't want to be left alone with your thoughts? Many of us make idols out of work and busyness so that we don't have to think about the changes that we know God is calling us to make in our lives. We subconsciously think that if we busy ourselves enough, that will go away. 
but it doesn't. And as a result, we have no inner peace. Thomas Akempis, who I've, I've quoted before, he's credited with writing the classic book, The Imitation of Christ. Everybody should read it. Says, when people desire anything, think about this, when people desire anything to an excessive degree, they immediately lose their peace of soul. The only thing we should desire to an excessive degree is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we should only lose our peace if we know that we aren't even trying to do either of those things. We do the same thing with entertainment in our culture, another idol. Many Christians don't busy themselves with work as much as they busy themselves with play, play and entertainment. Again, if you are always seeking to play and be entertained, you will never have time to think about spiritual things. Why am I not growing in holiness? Why am I still struggling with the same sins I struggled with 25 years ago? Why doesn't my spouse communicate with me anymore? We drown our inner voice. We drowned it and the voices all around us and the Holy Spirit's voice and conviction when we ridiculously busy ourselves with everything but God and the things of God. So you have to ask yourself, what other idols, if I didn't name your idol, what other idols do you have in your life? We all know. Let's be real. Many Christians idolize that three by six inch piece of glass in your hand or your pocket or your purse. They idolize their social media accounts on that piece of glass. Did I get any new likes? How many views do I have? Did anyone reply to me yet? I can't wait to play that game again. It's so addictive. I just love it. I just want to see if there's any new pictures posted on so-and-so's page. Everybody's always talking about that page. Everybody's talking about that video. I got to download it now. Here's one I was talking to my son about not that long ago. Um, I can't believe how easy it is to gamble on this piece of glass. I think I'm down $275 this week, so I need to study the stats more and more and be more careful placing my bets next week. I'll bet I can make my money back next week. I can do it. Those things that I just mentioned regarding the piece of glass are bad enough in themselves to excess. Everything in moderation, right? I believe that the biggest problem with the piece of glass that 
I see over and over again is when parents ignore their children because their face is planted in the piece of glass incessantly because it's become an idol. I was in a doctor's office recently and there was a mom with two kids and the kids were young and they clearly exhibited every sign of being starved for their mother's attention, but she would not put the piece of glass down. I wanted to get up and bat it out of her hand. She wouldn't look away from the piece of glass even to correct her kids. And even when the kids began to act out and try to get her attention, she continued right on staring into the piece of glass. The dumb grin on her face that people do when they're looking at their phone. She wasn't paying any attention to her kids. Now, some parents have rectified this problem by allowing their kids to be on their own little piece of glass just as long as they want them to be. There's no governor. There's no time limit. There's, they just let them on it. Do whatever they want so that the kids are out of their parents' hair so they continue their love affair with the stupid little piece of glass. Now, I know that this is a wonderful invention. This is a wonderful invention, okay? I understand that. And you can ask my adult son back there, my, my daughter-in-law, and um, they, will, they will probably tell you that I'm the most tech-savvy 59-year-old you know. I probably utilize tech as a tool for its right and proper uses more than anybody I know, mainly because of the pain issues I deal with. I don't want to carry 20 books. I carry the books on the iPad. I'm not bragging or anything like that. I'm just saying that I use tech and I recognize the advantages of tech and the beauty of what tech can do. But you will never ever, ever see me ignore real face-to-face -face conversations and activities with my wife and with my kids and with my grandchildren, especially because I'm so concerned about how many likes I got on something I posted 37 seconds ago. If you drop dead tomorrow, what do you want your kids and grandkids to remember you for? Do you want them to be remembered? Do you, do you want to be remembered as playing a game with them, building a puzzle with them, riding bikes with them, hiking in the woods with them, reading a book to them or with them, watching an educational documentary with them? Or do you want them to remember you sitting on the couch with your face in a piece of glass with a stupid grin on your face while they beg you for attention? You give them none. It's the biggest idol in the church right now. It's the biggest idol in the church right now. I spent five minutes on that because it's such an obsession. And many of us have crossed the line, and we know if we've crossed the line, and I need to bring it up as your pastor, and you need to deal with it. 
as followers of Christ. And as you walk out of here this morning, I ask that you please assess your life and identify your idols, just like the Israelites and the Corinthians, our examples, Paul said, remember? And once you identify your idols, I'd like you to determine how much sin and conviction you're actually ignoring in your life. We are all adults, and we all know the Lord well enough to know when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of something that we shouldn't be doing. I'm just asking you to own it. That's all. And once you do that, please go to the Lord in prayer and sincerely repent. Turn away from the sin, which is what the word means, repent. Make a plan of how you're going to do better. Only you, back to MacArthur, only you can put liberties and limitations on you. Have confidence in your God to cause you to do better, and he will. I want you to remember Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which says, For since he himself, Christ, was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Your Christ understands that which tempts you, and he intercedes for you to the Father incessantly. That's the first thing you need to keep in mind. And don't be alarmed, folks, but sometimes, listen, sometimes we're thick-headed, and the Lord has to allow us to stew and simmer a bit. Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. If God is letting you simmer, he will redeem that time and use you to strengthen your brothers and sisters down the road. Remember Job, God had him pray for his friends after his trial was over. Trust me, I've been in the stew pot many, many times because of my own stubborn stupidity, mostly. And I was able to help others with those particular hard-learned lessons later in life. And I'm sure many of you seasoned saints would concur to such, right? The Lord is faithful to us in all things, folks. He uses the good and the bad for his sovereign purposes. We're coming around the home stretch now. How long has it been? I'm still good. Okay. Just when you begin to entertain the possibility that he may 
be there, but he's been, in your estimation, too silent in your life for your liking. And you think he's taken a back seat to your concerns, your cares, your desires. Remember, please remember Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Each day of your life is mapped out. That should be a great comfort to you. He works all things after the counsel of his will. His will, not our will. Ephesians 1.11. John Piper drives this home so well. I read this once before about eight years ago. I'm going to read it quickly because it's a little, little bit. But just listen. Piper says, God controls the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16:33, the slaughter of his people, Psalm 44:11, the decisions of kings, Proverbs 21:1, the failing of sight, Exodus 4:11, the sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12:15, the loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2:7, the suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4:19, the completion of travel plans, James 4:15, the persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12:4 through 7. The repentance of souls, 2 Timothy 2.25. The gift of faith, Philippians 1.29. The pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3.12 and 13. The growth of believers, Hebrews 6.3. The giving of life and taking of death, 1 Samuel 2.6. And the crucifixion of his son, Acts 4.27 and 28. From the smallest thing, Piper says, to the greatest thing, Good and evil, happy and sad, pagan and Christian, pain and pleasure. God governs them all for his wise and just good purposes. Isaiah 46.10. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. It should all come as a great comfort. Let Israel be your example, church. And please remember, God ain't playing. This is for real. The universe isn't an illusion like Hindus would like you to believe it is. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. He will cause you to persevere till the end and realize the fullness of your salvation when he calls you home to be in his presence forevermore.